1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. These are their stories. Eastern Britain, 980 A.D., Seven thirty p m.
0: Thou was hrath garr given, wiggis Wertmund, that him his winnie machis, yerna hirdan, oth sail yeel got ye wax, him on mon dat that hail wretched hattin me maido er michel men ye werchian. Don Avra On Theron Inen, on Switchum God Bulton Foskara, On Ferum Gumina. Then was to Hrothgar's success in warcraft given, honor in war, so that his retainers eagerly served him, until the young warband grew into a mighty battalion. It came into his mind that a hall house he wished to command, a grand mead hall, be built by men which the sons of men should hear of forever, and therewithin share out all to young and old, such as God gave him, except the common land
1: and the lives of men. Quote from Beowulf, as read by Kevin Stroud, creator of the History of English podcast and creator of a Beowulf audiobook. Everyone's
0: right and no one is sorry start and the end of the story from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning
1: greetings my name is benjamin jacobs your host as we travel towards wittenberg and westphalia through the wars of the reformation this is episode 34 class structure part two the nobility part one yeah we are back to these kinds of titles apologies Also, please wait until after the closing music for this month's donors. I really wanted to do that cold opening thing, and so the donors had to be moved to the end, but they deserve honor and praise. Anyway, way back in episode 6, I did a short rundown on the way the class structure worked in the Middle Ages, and how difficult it is for us in modern times to conceptualize it. At the time, I promised a minimum of three more episodes on the topic, but I never got around to it. Well, here we are. To kick off our non-narrative look at the culture and society of medieval Europe, I'm going to start with the class system that I promised to do long ago. I'm doing this because, in my opinion, it was the one factor that most shaped life for an individual in the Middle Ages. To be fair, I'm a person predisposed to think this way, but I want to be clear that this is not some sort of neo-Marxist economic determinism thing. Actually, it was even somewhat the reverse, depending on the time period we're talking about. As we discussed in Episode 6, class distinctions were not caused by socioeconomic power, instead, they helped determine socioeconomic power. This statement might seem either confusing, obvious, or absurd depending on your viewpoint, so let me do a short review of what we talked about in Episode 6 before we get started. In modern Western society, we tend to think of the social structure of society as a pyramid. Your location on the pyramid is determined by a combination of your social influence over others and your economic buying power. Depending on who you ask, your ability to move up and down this pyramid is either determined by your merit as an individual or by the wider social and economic context in which you were born. Though most people who are not complete ideologues will have to admit that the reality is some combination of the two, it is around this issue that most political questions in the developed world currently revolve. But let's not get sidetracked. Society in the Middle Ages did not work this way, at least not within the conceptions of social order articulated at the time. In the Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate, yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. (laughs) This concept was actually first articulated in a manuscript modern historians attribute to the actual King Alfred the Great of England, and was repeated by writers all through the rest of the Middle Ages, so we can be fairly certain of the importance of the idea to the political classes. We will come back at a later date to a discussion of whether they really were in any way equal, and what the peasants thought about being equally important as the nobles. But for now, let's just say that there were legal restrictions placed on the different classes by law that clearly set limits on a person's ability to advance socially. These laws multiplied with time, but it was clear that for some large part of the decision-making part of the European society, uh, and for most of the Middle Ages, this is how it was felt that things should be. At the same time, I want to be very clear that despite the importance of this three-way division, and despite the laws, the classes were not monolithic, and the boundaries between groups were permeable. There were wealthy peasants, and there were poor knights. And the clergy was really a bizarre hybrid of the other two classes. Viewing society in the Middle Ages as monolithic, either through the prism of modern Weberian conceptions of social pyramids, or through the simplistic medieval social trinity, would completely obscure the way medieval society actually worked and make the further elaboration of the changes it was undergoing inexplicable. So, with that in mind, let's begin our discussion of class with the nobility. We start here because the nobility is, in many ways, the class that is the best understood, the best studied, and the social framework of the nobility really came to define the Middle Ages as we know it. Podcast footnote. Our understanding of what that social framework was has gradually evolved over time due to the efforts of many historians over long periods of study. But there is one man to whom we owe most of the modern synthesis of the history of medieval society. In much the way Charles Darwin's theory of evolution still defines the way ecologists and biologists understand the world despite 150 years of additional scientific advances, Mark Bloch's short but productive life's work on medieval history remains the most important work in medievalism to this day. Despite many advances in our understanding of the Middle Ages, often made due to methodological techniques championed by Blauch himself, the larger structure that Blauch outlined remains largely relevant even 74 years after his heroic death at the hands of a Nazi executioner. Mark Blauch's structural analysis of the upper-class society in the Middle Ages is so fundamental to the modern understanding that I actually considered just quoting him at length and being done with it. The concluding chapter of his seminal work on the subject, The Society of the Middle Ages, really says succinctly all that I wanted to say, but there are some places where modern thought has left Dr. Blauch behind. His prose is also notoriously hard to wade through, even when it isn't a translation from French, and anyway, that would just all be a huge cop-out. Still, just know that the entire rest of the episode is deeply indebted to the work done by Dr. Blauch, and if you're a person who is really passionate about medieval history, you should read his work at some point. Obviously, I should say there is a story here, and I will be telling it in a future episode in terms of the life and work of Dr. Mark Blauch, given his execution by the Nazis. As an aside, a listener contacted me about a month or so ago asking me to maybe do more with my discussions of my sources. Embarrassingly, I can no longer find the message, and so I can't remember the listener's name to thank them now. If you're listening, feel free to get in touch. I've decided that my three-year anniversary show in October is going to feature a detailed discussion of Liut and Mark Blauch as a result of this uh, suggestion by the listener, and there will also be any questions you may have. Please send them to me. There are also some other goodies in the cards as well for the month of October, because October is the 500-year anniversary of Martin Luther's 95 Theses. We have a bunch of stuff planned in the Agora Network, so please stay tuned. Anyway, end podcast footnote. The basic background of the class structure of the nobility, as we have covered, is that the feudal society of the Middle Ages was the product of the forcible marriage of Germanic upper-class culture with Roman upper-class culture. These were very different societies, and in the past it might have been said that they were at different stages of development. Modern historians don't like to say that kind of thing, because the differences were actually not as stark as it might appear at first. Despite the protestations of the bigoted Roman writers, modern archaeological evidence shows that the prolonged contact with the Romans had allowed many of the Germanic tribes to bring on board a variety of Roman technologies, social structures, concepts, and political organizational techniques. Furthermore, Romans and Germans were both Indo-European peoples, and in many ways they shared more than they differed. For example, at one point historians like to talk up the traditional Germanic cultural practices uh, that were inherently democratic. But of course, Greek and Roman republican traditions had long roots as well, especially in terms of municipal government structures, and the empire never really got rid of these structures. In fact, modern research suggests that these kinds of proto-republican, semi-democratic structures persisted in the Eastern Empire well into the late Byzantine period, at least in some parts of the imperial apparatus, especially the ones that pertained to municipal government. Given this evidence, modern historians have largely given up on parsing out which elements of the new society came from Roman and which from German precedents. It's probably an ultimately futile project, and in the past it has tended to lead to some unfortunate uh, opinions. Etymology at one point seemed to suggest a solution to this parsing, but in studying the issue, historians and etymological researchers have found that the names of institutions swapped around based on social trends and wider forces, with words swapping from Roman to German to Roman to German, often multiple times. More broadly, the extensive amount of localization in the Middle Ages means that an institution that derived from Germanic precedents in one area might derive from Roman ones in another area, or it might never be adopted universally. So much of what formed the society was also just never written down, that we can't be clear on who was communicating with whom and sharing ideas. What is more clear is generally the way the social institutions evolved after contact. The key issue is one that I've touched on in the Italian episodes of this show. As social structures collapsed, with the gradual disintegration of the Roman Empire and the start of the migration period, with all that that implied for the disruption of the Germanic societies, people tended to rely more and more heavily on family to protect their interests. This may have always been an instinctive move from the predominantly tribal German side, but it seems to have become increasingly prominent on the Roman side as well, even in places without much German influence. We see evidence for this process even in the legal codes of the early Middle Ages. The big problem with a social structure based on using family connections to enforce law and order was that it was essentially a revenge-based system. There are two big flaws in such a system. First and most pertinently to the majority of our ancestors, if my family lacks resources and yours has a lot of resources, maybe the revenge of my family doesn't mean all that much to your family. So from the start of this system, there was a tendency to create incentives for weaker families to put themselves under the protection of stronger ones. More on this when we get to the episode on the peasantry. But let's say that your family and mine have roughly equivalent resources. Since your family is always likely to see your side of the situation, and mine will see my side, disputes could rapidly devolve into blood feuds. While this did have a certain deterrent effect, this meant that society was at all times a series of armed camps of family groups, reliant on a balance of power to maintain order through deterrence. As we know from our more modern history, deterrence and balances of power can be very double-edged swords. They can create and enforce stability for long stretches, but then they can very rapidly break down due to spiraling paranoia and catastrophic misunderstandings. The Wehrgeld system was the first response to this problem, and it seems to have been in the process of evolving in Germanic society even before they moved into the Roman Empire. As the German tribal powers began to structure themselves into kingdoms with the help of literate Roman clergy, these laws were then written down. Under this system, it should first be said that the family had jurisdiction over most things. Things were only really crimes if they crossed family boundaries. So if I steal from my sister, my dad's gonna take care of it, privately, whereas if I steal from your sister, maybe our dads are gonna have to have it out. That threatens the stability of all society, and that triggered the use of what we might call the criminal legal codes. Of course, the most classic example of such a crime was actually murder. The term wergeld means man price, so the price of a man's life. A murderer who was found guilty of the crime would be forced to pay a fine to the family of the deceased, which would satisfy the need for revenge and end the feud. There are, you know, several problems with this system, but let's focus on two. First, finding someone guilty required a judge of some kind, presumably one that both parties would find impartial. Since these new kingdoms were based on alliances of clans and tribes, usually this was some sort of elder, chief, or the king. An inherent problem in this situation is that a party found guilty might be so upset with the verdict that they would blame the judge, and thus create the civil war that they were trying to avoid in the first place. More problematic on a day-to-day basis is that these judges were not legal scholars. But with no sophisticated legal framework for weighing evidence, and with the person making the decision usually just being the most respected person who happened to walk by that day, there ended up being two common ways that the decision was made as, as to guilt or innocence. First, the defendant and the accuser would get all the people that they knew to testify to their side of the case. Keep in mind that there was no concept that these people had any actual insight as to the crime committed. They were simply character witnesses, and you were duty-bound to testify in favor of a member of your family, even if you thought the guy was a jerk. If the testimony of your family was not enough to determine the verdict, there were trials by combat and ordeal. The latter was actually an enlightened evolution of the former, despite how we view it today. I don't really have time to go into it, but suffice it to say that trial by combat obviously went to the guy who was a better warrior and who was stronger. On the other hand, some recent statistical research into the conviction rates that resulted from trial by ordeal are not explicable by medical science unless either God actually had a hand in determining the outcome or, maybe more likely from my point of view, the clerics that administered the test were actually putting their fingers on the scales, if you will. Anyway, the point of all this is that the legal system gradually codified the importance of family into feudal society, which reflects the wider trends. This worked fairly well at the local level, but over time and on a wider scale, problems developed. As anyone who has ever watched a Shakespeare play will tell you, family can, in fact, let you down. And the further away they are, and the harder communications are, the more likely that they will more fundamentally, the evolution of the feudal society happened over generations. And even if you and your siblings are thick as thieves, your kids might not be. And after that, their kids positively will not be without some sort of social reinforcement. Finally, it should be said that the conditions of European society in the Middle Ages did not encourage family trees with a multiplicity of branches, and the nobility in particular had all sorts of incentives towards political marriages with which you are no doubt familiar. So within a few generations of the foundation of a kingdom, all of the noble families were intermarried, and suddenly disputes between families could result in divided loyalties. If Steve were to murder Tom, and I was cousins with both of them, well, which side should I support in the coming court case? What if Steve then went into revolt against Good King Brown? I'm actually related to all three of them. What do I do? There were actually laws put in place in some places, determining degrees of loyalty a person could be excused for adhering to in treason cases. Like, if I rebelled to support my first cousin, that was okay. But if it was my second cousin, and I lost, I was doomed to hang. For the lower classes, this was less of an issue, because travel was so rare that families tended to stack up all in the same village, with results for genetic diversity that maybe we shouldn't really contemplate at the moment. But for the nobility, this problem was fundamental, because the family clan wasn't just your guard and your help, it was also the basic unit of military mobilization, at least in the areas dominated by Germanic invaders. If families lost the ability to bring their members to the field, then the alliance of clans, which is the definition of the tribe, will also not be able to deploy their military force. In the more Roman-influenced areas, there was still the issue of who to trust to command military forces and state power. These are slightly different issues, but they result in similar illusions. So the institution of vassalage grew out of this background. Now, the landed magnates of Europe had always surrounded themselves with a household that included more than just their immediate relatives. Servants and slaves, of course, helped with the daily tasks of life, and in situations where someone needed some roughing up, the paterfamilias would, of course, find the stable hands and the kitchen staff only too willing to leave behind their drudgery for a few hours and see off some unwanted interlopers. This is certainly something that was common to both the Germanic nobility and the Roman senators in their villas, and we have ample documentary evidence to this effect from late antiquity. But as state power fell to pieces and this kind of thing got more common, or if in the case of the Germans, state power had never really existed to begin with, the landed magnates involved would need to start relying on this aspect of their household more and more. Ultimately, this resulted in the magnates hiring people to join their household for no other reason than because they were pretty good in a fight. We might think of this as hiring on private security or if we're being less charitable, we might think of this as the local godfather hiring some muscle. Take your pick of metaphor, by all means, but it should also be added that the local landed magnate would also have pre-established relationships with the local poor farmers, and at least some of the men who were recruited might have been local boys who had had long ties of loyalty to their family's patron. Naturally, as this situation became more common, a divide developed between the members of the household who actually worked for a living, and the ones who hung around looking tough and menacing and lifting weights, and helping the big man of the house make sure everyone in that particular postal district knew who was big. Since these guys were always just hanging around, and because these were troubled times, it was not long before they began to help the big guy with the managerial tasks of being a noble in the Middle Ages. David. I need you to go two villages over and bring back the land rent. I am swamped. Travis, go inspect the cattle herds up in the hills and make sure my shepherds aren't drinking all the milk. Zach, I need you to take this fancy present to King Royfield. Dominic, I need you to go stab Widow Jenkins for me. I want her farm. There's a good lad. And of course, the richer you were, the more of these guys you could afford to have hanging around, eating your food, and the stronger you would be when it came time to line them up and give them big pointy sticks and point them in the direction of the next big guy over. Come on, everyone, line up. Those dark myths weirdos are getting a little too friendly with my sheep again. Let's give them a good thumping. From an economic perspective, this gradually forming system of relationships had low overhead. The etymological, legal, and artistic evidence is that most of the time these guys were literally being paid in food. That certainly conforms to our wider view, confirmed by archaeological evidence that money had mostly fallen out of circulation in most of Europe for most situations at this time. The economy was mostly one that functioned in kind, rather than in cash, and agriculture was the ultimate source of all real wealth. In such a society, a guaranteed meal was more than enough to keep people coming back day after day, and so there was no need or even ability to provide what we might call a salary. As time went by, this arrangement was codified more and more into the early medieval legal systems. As we've discussed, the legal system of this time was trying desperately to stabilize society and prevent crimes turning into civil wars. Most of the early Germanic kingdoms dissolved in the face of such civil wars within a few generations of their establishment. Over time, the legal recognition of the inherent unity of family groups was extended to those under the protection of the family unit. Offences against someone's man were considered offenses against the family and given punishments under the Wehrgeld system and its successors. Of course, a distinction was written into the legal system between the magnate's men who were peasants and the magnate's men who were hired muscle. I'll give you one guess as to who was given more protection. A new problem generated by this expanded family unit was how to deal with those who proved disloyal to their masters. For members of a family who betrayed the family, punishment was an internal affair, assigned by the family outside of the jurisdiction of society. Initially, loyalty issues amongst household servants were dealt with in the same way. But as the household men became an institution, problems arose. A household man who proved disloyal might turn out to be a member of another family, maybe sent there as part of some sort of political arrangement, maybe just to train the boy up. In such a situation, an attempt to enforce loyalty might spark off a blood feud, so you couldn't just let landed magnates go around beating and killing their men indiscriminately, but one could also not have members of the household constantly running between families seeking better deals. That would destabilize the entire system. And so the legal systems of the time set out social norms, outlining the terms under which a person could be described as being part of the household, the kinds of offenses that would be violations of that trust, and the punishments that would be doled out to those who proved disloyal. This was, as it happened, an important part of the move away from the Wehrgeld system and towards a more familiar type of criminal justice system, but that's still a long ways off. Now, it should be said that I'm presenting a highly simplified version of how this process developed. It is certainly possible that the institution of household men long predated the early Middle Ages. Certainly there are strong precedents in both Roman and Germanic art poetry and documented history. Of course there are. Loyalty in these systems, though, was enforced by strong social norms on the Germanic side of the line, and by economic and legal intimidation on the Roman side of the line. What did not develop until the early Middle Ages was an explicit legal code for dealing with these institutions. And there's sort of two ways to view this. Potentially these legal norms did not develop because, on the German side, legal institutions were just not regularly being written down. And because, on the Roman side of the line, such a privatization of military force was still a threat to the power of the state. It was only as the societies merged that the Roman need for codified laws caused legal codes to be developed. There's a fair amount of truth to this view. But the view I tend towards a little bit more is that the mixing of Germanic and Roman social systems in the context of the collapse of centralized law and order took these previously existing institutions and thrust them into a central place in the organization of society. They may have existed before, but they just weren't that important. But when everything else collapsed, these were what was left. I think that there's a perceptible trend within the written laws and the evidence we have of society, which I've presented here, uh, where the early laws show a reliance on traditional family structures, with a gradual recognition as to the weaknesses of that system, and more and more reliance on other institutions, such as the household system. So, to review. In the Middle Ages, society was conceived of as a three-way harmony of those who fought, those who prayed, and those who worked, with the nobility representing those who fought. The nobility clearly developed out of a merger between the middle and upper classes of the Germanic invaders with the upper classes of Roman society. Disentangling this process is difficult and probably fruitless, but it is worth noting that both sides had developed institutions that would allow this merger to take place and persist going forward. An initial stage of this merger saw the collapse of centralized enforcement of law and order. Society became organized around alliances of family groups who maintained order amongst their members via social pressure and threatened retaliation on those who attacked the family from the outside. This system of alliances of families into clans, clans into tribes, and tribes into kingdoms formed the initial basis of the new social order, as is clear from the surviving documentation we have of the legal system. Over time, the leaders of these families found that the use of the people within their own extended households, which included by necessity the kinds of people we might term security guards, sometimes provided a more reliable source of military muscle than the extended clan network. Though still within the context of family clan dynamics, the nobility began to assemble people in their household with the clear intent of using them as soldiers. As this institution became widespread, the legal framework of these societies was gradually changed to recognize the new fact on the ground, and establish codes of behavior that governed the intensely personal relationship between a noble and his man. With that, I'm going to cut this episode here. I was originally going to try and cram everything into a single episode, but I think it will work out better this way. Next time, we will discuss how the household man system developed into the classical feudal system of the Middle Ages, and the ramifications that this had for the political organization of medieval society. Until then, thank you for listening to Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation, and remember to wait until after the music for this month's donors. They have all earned hilarious regnal names, and I put a lot of time and effort into creating them, so please listen. Thank you all for waiting so that we may appropriately honor our donors and patrons for this month. First up, we have donor Mark, who shall hereafter be known as Mark, the HTML. Up next, we have donor John, who shall be known far and wide as John Bloodyam. Up next we have patron Scott, who due to my recent victory over the Papacy, shall be known as Scott, the appropriately pious Archbishop of Dawkins. Thank you to all my donors, and patrons, and if you would like to donate either securely via PayPal, or presumably also securely in a monthly fashion via Patreon, please go to my website and go to the store page. Every little bit helps, and it helps me move, and helps me feed my family, which is very important. Thank you very much.